The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. That eco group that Wood was supposedly a part of, well, it's since disbanded, but its leader at the time was a guy named Jack Hasty. He's an environmental author now. In his new book, Our Earth's End, it's about the coming eco disasters and the destruction of the human race. If you want to know the future, look at the facts. In less than 35 years, we'll have no gas, no coal, and no uranium left. As our energy resources dwindle and needs rise due to global warming, scarcity will spark the inevitable. A massive, bloody world war, probably within the next Massive, years. bloody energy war? Question. Just like Doyle described. Given how compromised our planet already is, will the human race survive? Thank you. Yeah, I knew Garrett Ward. When he first came to us, he said all the right things. How big oil and coal were destroying our environment. He even helped me plan that sit-in on the energy conference. After a few weeks, it became obvious he didn't care about the environment. So how well did you know him personally? Well, enough to know he was nuts. How so? He was paranoid. He was always looking over his shoulder. And he'd say things about the future, messed up things, about apocalyptic wars and how the human race needed to be cleansed. It was pretty creepy. Kind of like some of the predictions you just made? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 16th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be The creepy predictions about climate change and the destruction of the human race just keep coming from a group of nutty people who think they have the ability to see the future. Environmentalists, the mainstream media, and of course, our mainstream politicians. We'll be examining this socialist phenomenon with our guest, Dave Plum, right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. And we're in studio with none other than author Dave Plum, who has written a book called Inconveniently Screwed, all about climate change. And Dave's no stranger to the show, has been on several times before. Dave, are you getting depressed? It just doesn't stop. I'd call it a climate derangement syndrome. That well, I agree that we have a climate change crisis, but it doesn't have anything to do with temperature or CO2. It has to do with politics and education. That's where the crisis is. There's nothing wrong with the climate. I agree. You know, if you turn on talk show radio shows, I listen to them daily for as long as I can, which is maybe an average of 10 minutes before I can't take it anymore. I've got the same thing with the late night shows. Yeah. It's all about Trump and climate change. And it's That's like, it. I've been hearing this for like three years now, and it's a steady diet and find something else to talk about because this is getting like really worn out and boring. I know this is a personal passion for you. 
talking about climate change and trying to inform people about the facts in what is essentially an environment in which facts don't matter to a lot of people, especially the people pushing these issues. And I know you've been going out in public and making some official presentations. Any interesting observations about that? Oh, all kinds of them. I've done some presentations for some uh, service clubs. There was one where, where a teacher challenged me. She said, I don't like this, and it's like you don't like what, science and natural history? But what she didn't like was, was the message that there's really nothing to worry about in terms of climate. And, uh, you know, I relayed the story about years ago when we still had pennies where I was getting $4.97 back from a clerk. I put three pennies on the counter, and, and, and this girl didn't know what to do with them. She had to actually count the 500 cents back into the till before she'd give me a $5 bill because she couldn't do the mental math at right. 497 and 3. And I said, when I was in school, we had flashcards where the teacher would hold up and the answer would be on the back of the card. So we'd do a question, you know, whatever, 6 times 7 is 56. And then I paused to see if anybody catches that. <laughs> because 6 times 7 isn't 56. <laughs> <laughs> and it's surprising how many people won't catch me on it. But anyway, I said, but this is how we learn to do mental arithmetic. And it seems like they don't do that. And this teacher said, well, we do things differently now. And I said, boy, I'll say. And part of what they do differently is they pump this climate change thing. I mean, I updated the graph that I have in my book. Interior High School Curriculum Documents Online from about four years ago, where I showed climate change mentioned 144 times, I believe. Well, now it's up to 188 times. And back then they mentioned greenhouse gas 41 times, I believe, and now it's 79 times. Milankovitch cycles in, in both cases are mentioned once. Yeah. But Milankovitch cycles are what really matter. Did, did you ever see, hear, see the Navier-Stokes equation mentioned anywhere? Never. Because that's one thing that Professor Chris Well, and I've got a chapter in my book, and I've also done these uh, PowerPoint presentations, yeah. which basically covered a lot of what's in the book, but it would be half an hour to an hour presentation, depending on how long I had to talk. What really bothers me about climate change is not climate change itself. I'm not the least bit worried about that, because I realize from having done the research on it that we actually live in a time where climate is as benign and stable as it ever gets on this planet. We should be very grateful for the climate we have instead of worrying about it. But what really does concern me is the uh, the politics and the education of climate change. I mean, we, we say we're doing this for the kids. Well, if we were really concerned about the kids, we wouldn't be so blatantly lying to them in school, for instance. Well, of course, this is all really a political movement, and the climate that's being changed, as we've been talking about on this show for years, is the political climate. Most of this climate change reference comes from social sciences and humanities. It's right. not science at all. It's sociology. It's the social agenda that's really pushing this. And it's metastasizing to all these other uh, disciplines. In the midst of all of this propaganda, yeah. what should the average person do in terms of refuting these ideas? You can't just sit down and recite a whole bunch of facts that are scientific. For example, CO2 is not a pollutant, for heaven's sakes, right? Yeah. And yet people don't feel confident enough to even state that one fact. If you had that one fact out there, would I be incorrect in saying that, that the whole house of cards would fall if people accepted that one thing? Well, here's the thing about CO2, okay? C1O2. So it's two-thirds oxygen. Mm -hmm. So constitutionally, carbon dioxide is, is mostly oxygen. And only really lazy and imprecise and scientifically ignorant people 
refer to a compound by one of its elemental Elements, parts. Yeah. So if you're going to refer, if you're going to be like that, and you're going to refer to CO2 by one of its elemental parts, the only marginally excusable thing to call it is oxygen, not carbon, because right. because constitutionally <laughs> it's 67% oxygen. If you look at molecular mass, the atomic mass of oxygen is 16, the atomic mass of carbon is 12 in round numbers, but if you add that up, it's 44, of which 32 44s, which is 73%, that's oxygen. Right. So whether you look at it 67% constitutionally or 73% by mass, in round numbers, carbon dioxide is 70% oxygen. So where we're hearing about carbon pollution, we should be hearing about oxygen pollution. Where we're hearing about carbon footprints, we should be hearing about oxygen footprints. And how about but we even don't the, have a carbon even, tax? Even those are ridiculous statements to call Well, they're absolutely pollution. ridiculous statements. All I'm saying is if we're going to be that absurd and talk about carbon dioxide in those terms, we should be substituting oxygen for carbon, in which case we don't have a carbon tax. We have an oxygen tax. And then you have the situation where a lot of people... And we've seen this even in, in governmental positions who do not know the difference between carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, right? <laughs> exactly. And they've been challenged on it, and they're complete idiots. Yeah. And there they are legislating on a science. And it just amazes me that we have created this whole generation that is so ignorant of basic, basic things. It's like, it, it, it stuns me. There's no common knowledge out there anymore. Yeah. You know? Well, because it used to be taught in school. Right. But we do things differently now, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what's going on. Now, I am a teacher. Don't worry, I'm one of the good ones. You don't see me teaching today, no. Because I'm down here in the trenches with you, fighting alongside you, because I too care about climate change. I'm always surprised as a teacher that I have so much to learn and I think my <laughs> I would have to say I think my greatest teachers are my students <laughs> I learn so much from my students because my students are my greatest teachers and I would say that my students students their greatest students are their teachers <laughs> Well, not all their teachers, because some teachers' students, who are students to their students, don't want to learn from their student teachers. I'm not naming any names, but <coughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> but we need to teach those teacher students. They need to learn from their student teachers. If not from teachers teaching like teachers, then from students teaching like teachers. Because teachers are the students' greatest teacher for teachers. Because they can teach us. They can teach us that need to be taught. Those that teach themselves are their greatest students and the greatest teachers in one student-teacher sort of hybrid. We promised you Greta Thunberg, and we're going to give you Greta Thunberg. <laughs> My name is Greta Thunberg. When I first heard about climate change... Sorry, I can do it this way. When I first... She doesn't need the microphone. No, she doesn't, no. When I first heard about climate change, I could not believe more people were talking about it. I saw a woman talking about her dead son. 
I said, why are you not talking about climate change? There should be a lipstick called climate change. So it will always be on everybody's lips. I come from Sweden. Has anybody been to Sweden? Well, Sweden is the Mecca of... Well, it's just Mecca. That was a little joke. When I first heard about climate change, I could not eat. I could not sleep. I did not want to go to school. What was the point of learning my ABDs and 2 plus 2 is 5 when I have climate facts? Here we have a fresh face, a sharp mind, a voice for common sense and for science realism. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure to introduce Naomi Seipt. I used to be a climate change alarmist myself because obviously as a young girl, I grew up around the climate change hysteria. I grew up with it in the media, in my school books and on TV. And whenever my beliefs were, were questioned, I was the first one to ask the question, uh, so are you saying that you are a climate change denier? And of course, especially as a German girl, um, the word denier carries a lot of weight. And today I consider it an atrocious insult. But back then I didn't think about that. And I was an innocent young girl and I thought that by hugging the trees, uh, I could save the planet, which quite frankly uh, turned out not to be true. And I took pride in uh, buying paper bags instead of plastic bags, but I didn't really make a change. Then eventually, in 2015 roughly, I became a skeptic. And at first, not with regards to climate science, but rather with regards to the migration crisis in Germany. And once you start exploring these political topics that are more on the right, I guess, or in the libertarian department, things spiral out of control and you go down the path of understanding that uh, many topics such as feminism, gender, uh, socialism, postmodernism, and climate change uh, hysteria, they're all related in some way and pave the way for a very bad kind of totalitarianism. And I had always loved science as well, so naturally I had to become a climate change denier, a skeptic. Science, you see, is entirely based on intellectual humility, and it is important that we keep questioning the narrative that is out there instead of promoting it. And these days, uh, climate change science really isn't a science at all. Those self-proclaimed scientists We've heard it today. They draw their conclusions before even testing their hypothesis, and they base their assumptions on completely incoherent models, which is just an insult to science itself. And I asked myself, what is the goal of all of this? And I believe, unfortunately, that the goal is to shame humanity. Climate change alarmism 
at its very core is a despicably anti-human ideology. And we are told to look down upon our achievements with guilt, with shame, and with disgust, and not even to take into account the many major benefits that we have gained from using fossil fuels as our main energy source. Because look around, we're living in such an amazing era of fast progress, of innovation, and we are not allowed to be proud of that at all. Instead, um, debates are being shut down and scientists, real scientists, lose their jobs for performing the most genuine and innocent form of science there is, which is just real science, real skepticism. And that is not just an insult to science, that is an insult to the complexity of nature, and most importantly, it is an insult to the freedom of speech. And that's why we are here today, to speak up and to bring the spirit of science back to life again. Well, Dave, obviously one major character playing a role in this whole thing this year has been none other than Greta Thunberg, who has become the icon of the global warming movement. Didn't Time magazine just proclaim her? Person of the year. Person of the year. When you look at Greta Thunberg's major accomplishments, what's she really done? Skipped school, threw a bunch of tamper tantrums about climate change, and then blamed all the wrong people for the wrong reasons. Well, the media has, is just fawning over her. Yes. And, you know, I did a show on this already in the past where I call this whole thing a death cult because of what they're trying to do, which is to cease production. Yeah. It's an anti-productive uh, movement, and the whole concept of CO2, because it's a byproduct of heat and of production when you're, when you're actually manufacturing something, that's the target of all socialists. But they're getting this stuff in school, Bob, and this, I think the educational system, and teachers in particular, are largely to blame for that. The teachers you know, are the, the people who run the curriculum. Teachers are a really, really big part of the problem yeah. because, you know, and, and if there are teachers that find this offensive, then I'm going to say good because I'm greatly offended at having, having my tax dollars wasted on corrupting young minds in, in, in this manner. There's this uh, from the, uh, I guess, the Vancouver Star on July the 8th, this article, and it's about, uh, it says, depression, anxiety, PTSD, climate change is taking a toll on our mental health. And it starts out with this lady whose teenage daughter came home from school toting a piece of, of advice, don't have kids. Climate change makes it hard to justify. And it goes on and it talks about kids having sleepovers, talking about the destruction of the planet, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessions, compulsions, suicide, environmental grief, eco-grief, climate anxiety. It says any kind of change can lead to grief, uh, family strife caused by polarized political debates, uh, substance abuse, and, and on and on it goes. And at one point, it's talking about mental health impacts for people who study and communicate about climate change. Well, teachers are supposed to study and communicate about climate change. Teachers do not study climate. Teachers study the curriculum, Right. period. And, and what they're passing on is the curriculum, which... I just talked about how often climate change is mentioned, how often greenhouse gas is mentioned, how 
infrequently the things that really matter, like Milankovic cycles, are mentioned. And so the teachers are preaching from the curriculum. They're not preaching from science, and that's why they're such a big part of the problem. They don't study science, and they don't teach science. They study the curriculum, and they teach the curriculum. And it's all political well, climate terrorism, really. Yeah, and, and I consider it child abuse, too, the way they're aiming at children, because children do not have the necessary basics on which to judge the validity of what they're being told or not. No, we don't teach them how to, uh, how to learn anymore. Teaching a, a child how to learn is teach the child how to do some research, how to uh, collate the data, how to organize it, how to analyze it, and how to uh, draw reasonable conclusions from it. We don't do that anymore. We just tell them what to think. Right. And it's not education, it's indoctrination, propaganda, programming. There's any number of things you can call it, but it's not education. Well, it's all part of what I've called in the past child-centered learning, the whole language approach to teaching children, where children are supposed to pick up knowledge from themselves through groupthink. Osmosis. Right. And that's not how thinking works. Thinking is always an individualistic process. And an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail that was published, I guess, around December 13th. And the heading said, the climate crisis is like a world war, so let's talk about rationing. Written by Eleanor Boyle, who's a Vancouver-based writer and author of High Stakes, Why and How to Eat Less Meat. (laughs) Okay, Of course. And she talks about it's time for rationing. And then she quotes Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, who said... The climate crisis is our third world war. It needs a bold response. And then she adds, according to writer and activist Bill McGibbon, it's not that global warming is like a world war. It is a world war, and we are losing. This kind of outright propaganda and hysteria creation is is beyond the pale. Even in this piece that I was reading from before, they, they talk about wildfires exacerbated by temperature increases, and if you understand anything, you understand that the reason the air out west is so dry, and this affects Southern California even more than it does Canada, is that the Pacific Ocean has cooled down over the last couple of decades because the sun is in a particularly quiescent cycle. We don't have a whole lot of sunspot activity. The last solar cycle was the least active solar cycle in, in over a century. And the equatorial South Pacific Ocean has cooled down, which means that there's less evaporation coming off the water all along the west coast of North America. And that moisture is required to refill mountain lake reservoirs like Lake Tahoe and the Sierra Nevada snowpack down in California. But it also brings moisture inland in Canada. And when the water's cooler like that, and you don't get as much evaporation, you don't get as much moisture coming inland. So it's not warming that's causing all these problems it's actually cooling you see again the proponents of all of this climate change activism aren't interested in the climate they're interested in their socialistic ideology for example referring to this article that i just cited she writes that we need to immediately put the brakes on consumption this is not what they're after the whole world is a consuming society. What separates the West is that we're a production society. Capitalism. Capitalism has always been the declared enemy of the climate change alarmists. And so what they want to do is they want to put a hold on production because in so doing, rationing will become a necessity. And this is part of the drive behind the socialist mentality. Isabel Patterson, in her book, The God of the Machine, way back in the 1930s, wrote a chapter called The Humanitarian with the Guillotine. 
And she said, these people want to put themselves in a position of saving humanity. They see themselves as the saviors. And the last thing they want is to see people self-sufficient, to see people make it on their own, to see the so-called poor raise themselves up instead of somebody, you know, pushing them up. Better you should be a ward right. of the nanny state. These are all dictators posing as saviors of humanity. I call this now um, GTS. Greta Thunberg syndrome. <laughs> That's a good name for it. <laughs> you know, there have been other names. Uh, Willem Reich in his book, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, which is exactly what we're seeing today, he called it the emotional plague. Mm -hmm. And he saw the same symptoms that we're watching today in the Germany going into the Second World War. But at the root of all of this is an anti-capitalist ideal. And of course here she says, you know, fair shares for all. Fairness is, is what rationing is all about. Well, no, it's egalitarianism. That's mm -hmm. what they're talking about. That's what socialism's all about. And again, when you see these kind of values constantly promoted under the guise of fighting climate change, they're not even talking about climate. They're talking about fairness, about egalitarianism, about rationing. This is insanity. Well, and it's all coming from the United Nations, yes. which is uh, the IPCC, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is uh, part of the United Nations. None of them is a scientist. I mean, they pay these scientists to write what they want the reports to say, and then they say that 97% of scientists agree with them. Well, you would think if they're paying the people to write the reports that 100% of the people would would agree, wouldn't you? Yeah, you think so. But I mean, they're giving us credit for not being complete idiots because we know 100% of people of any group won't agree on everything. You know, so I have yet I have job. yet to hear a single scientist make a reasonable case for global warming, alarmism, or climate change, whatever they want to call it. I've had the privilege of not only interviewing you, because you know your stuff, but experts like Professor Christopher Essex, who was critical in computer modeling and has written his own books, talking about the Navier-Stokes equation. Christopher Monckton, who worked with Margaret Thatcher, and he bought into the climate change thing at first until he looked into it, and then he realized yeah, like, the whole thing was a hoax. Like me. Right. Until I did my own research on it and realized what the truth is, it's like, well, this isn't anything like what we're being told. And, of course, there was Lawrence Solomon from the National Post who's been on the show. So, anyways, we've interviewed all of these people on the show, and I have yet to find someone who can give a rational argument on the other side of that equation. Um, the Greta Thunberg phenomenon, Daisy, and our... A 16-year-old, a climate crusader, telling adults how to run their very complex industrial economies without coal. And uh, this phenomenon, by the way, of child profits is not new. It's been brought to my attention nearly 30 years ago. A 12-year-old girl, Seven Colors Suzuki, who's daughter of the Canadian environmentalist David Suzuki, also lectured adults, uh, this time at the Rio Summit, another UN fandango, uh, lecture them about the end of the world. Have a listen. I am fighting for my future. Losing my future is not like losing an election or a few points on the stock market. I am here to speak for all generations to come. I am here to spe speak on behalf of the starving children around the world whose cries go unheard. I am here to speak for the countless animals dying across this planet because they have nowhere left to go. Now Daisy is 30 years on, that 12 year old is still alive, the animals are still alive, starvation is actually at record lows, grain crops have never been bigger than this decade, but 
why don't we learn the lesson? You know, here we go again with yet another child prophet preaching doom for animals and humans. But I, I know, look, adults have always used children to galvanize other adults into supporting uh, particular causes. Charities do it, for instance. Um, in, in, not necessarily a bad thing to galvanize adults to give to charities, but they talk about, say, child poverty instead of poverty because, of course, suffering children elicit a huge amount of empathy from adult responders, un understandably, because they're dependent on adults for survival and who wouldn't want to give children a good future. So, of course, when it comes to climate change alarmists who have their own kind of whole nother agenda using children um, on the front lines kind of makes sense but look I'm a climate centrist, Andrew, okay? I believe in listening to all the arguments on all sides of the debate to come to the best possible conclusion. And the, what we do about climate change is nowhere near as cut and dry as these child prophets are telling us or perhaps are being told. For example, 500 scientists signed a letter recently to the United Nations Attorney General decrying the alarmism that they were putting into their climate change rhetoric, saying there is no climate emergency and demanding a debate in 2020 between scientists on both sides of the aisle to really nut out this climate change issue once and for all, which of course is not being uh, reported on. And to distract from this kind of dissent within the community, the alarmists dangle children out the front, pop them on the front lines and dare their opponents to criticise them. That is exactly correct. I mean, on that point, I was listening to uh, uh, ABC presenter John Fain, who's a uh, of the green left uh, today saying how terrible it was that commentators are attacking Greta Thunberg uh, you know when in fact we're criticizing a message you know they put a, a girl up and make her say all these uh, amazing things we say no she's wrong and this and this and this and this and uh, oh how dare you you know and then we had New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern today also upset with Thunberg being questioned and suggesting that perhaps uh, she might be a uh, more worthy recipient of the Nobel Prize than herself. Have a listen. I do think we need climate advocates uh, and I think you know it's, it's um, certainly couldn't be easy um, uh, having um, been thrust onto the world stage in that way um, but I have um, deep uh, admiration for her. So there you go again Daisy, what's your response to the left first choosing Thunberg to spread their global warming gospel and then having privileged her like that, put her up in the UN, savaging commentators for daring to disagree with it. Well, Andrew, this attitude from the left really does make me giggle because what these pearl clutches have failed to realise is that by insisting that anyone who criticises Greta's ideas is somehow a terrible person because how dare you attack a child, they're actually being incredibly disrespectful of her and incredibly patronising. Greta Thunberg, whether you, we agree with her or not, is an incredibly intelligent girl. She's very, very driven and she has put herself into to the arena of political ideology and politics and climate change, which is a very, very adult arena. What she's done by doing that is insist that adults take her seriously, as seriously as they would another adult. And with that, you've got to expect that if the adults who agree with you are taking you seriously, well, guess what? The adults who disagree with you are also going to take you seriously and are going to treat you as an adult. And with that comes legit criticism of what you're of 
what, of your ideas, which is very, very different to personal criticism. So what's so ironic here, Andrew, that is actually Greta's critics like you and myself who are showing her much more respect than her supporters who are coddling her and saying, oh, oh goodness, goodness, don't talk to her in case you hurt her feelings. She's a child. It's, it's, it's quite funny, actually, that, um, that kind of complex they have. The climate, it's 2045 and the earth is still here. Something that climate change activists said would never happen. But a recent climate change activism study shows that the fact that the earth still is here still proves that it's climate change. See, we said it was going to not be here, but then it's here. Like we said it was going to be warm and it's cold because that's like change, right? Climate change, hello. So this is a scary sight. What we're calling for people to do, okay, no more flights, no more cars, no more trains, no more food, no more air, and just die. If we're not willing to lay down and die as a people, there is no way the human race can survive. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online, and we're in studio with Dave Plum, author of Inconveniently Screwed, which is his take on the whole climate change hysteria that we're all being subject to. I'm going to put you on the spot. What's a climate scientist? Um... <laughs> That's a good question. But, you know, quickly, I would say anyone who knows some of the facts about climate. If you look up that? a dictionary definition of a climate scientist, okay, number one, I looked up a meteorologist, and it said that a meteorologist is somebody who studies weather conditions in the short term to okay. predict the weather, right? Right. So, and, and then I looked up a definition of a climate scientist, and a climate scientist is somebody who studies weather conditions in the longer term. So a meteorologist and a climate scientist are both people who study weather conditions. Right. One studies the near term, one studies longer term, but they're basically both meteorologists. Now the problem with weather conditions is it pertains strictly to atmospheric phenomena, things that happen in the air, right? Right. Okay. Now a true climate scientist would be studying everything from astronomical you, issues. You have to get astronomy, yeah. biology, chemistry, yeah. physics, mathematics, and geology. At least. Into the mix. Right. All those things impact climate. And, and if you're not pretty conversant with all those disciplines and their effects on climate, you're not a climate scientist. So who are these climate scientists? There's yeah. really no such thing as a climate scientist, or if there are some out there that incorporate all those disciplines into the study of climate, they're few and far between. Yes. Luton Milankovitch was one. There's a fellow named Willie Soon in the United States, and he studied everything from astronomy to weather patterns, you know, the whole deal. He understands it. But he is in a state of absolute shock that we've come this far down this path of irrationality Yeah. Uh, in terms of accepting all of this. Not, it's nonsense. It's absolute and nonsense. what are parents thinking these days? Why aren't parents doing some of their own research when their kids are coming home from school with climate change PTSD, for God's sakes? Why aren't the parents doing some research and saying, hey, wait a minute, why are you getting so upset? I'm getting depressed by it, but not because of the climate changing, it because of all the climate change activists around me. Exactly. You know, they're the depressants. Exactly. They're... It's not climate that's got no. me upset. It's, it's the politics of climate change that has me upset. Two different things. So, speaking of some of the facts that obviously 
the climate change activists aren't interested in. One that crossed our path that you sent us a bit of a notice on that I found very fascinating was the effect of, of all things, the planet Jupiter and its gravitational influence and how it controls the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit and and affects climate. Well, Jupiter is a huge planet. Yes, Uh, it is. Jupiter is uh, over 70% of the planetary mass of the solar system. Uh, Just on that one body. On that one body. Yeah. Yeah. It's two and a half times as massive as all the other planets combined. And it's 317 times as massive as Earth, so its gravitational influence is huge. And it's because of Jupiter that we have uh, the primary uh, cycle and the Milankovitch cycles. Now, the Milankovitch cycles, of course, are eccentricity, which is the degree of stretch of Earth's orbit. Obliquity is axial tilt, and uh, precession is slippage in the orbital lock as the Earth goes around the Sun. But the primary cycle that really drives periods of glaciation at interglacial periods in which we're living right now is the cycle of eccentricity, and that's controlled by the orbit of Jupiter by the influence of Jupiter's gravity. The other thing I've recently recently done some research on and read about is that Jupiter and to a somewhat lesser extent but in conjunction with Jupiter Earth and Venus the gravitational influences of these planets also control the 11 year cycle of solar activity the peaks and valleys so Jupiter seems to have kind of a controlling influence in what goes on in the solar system in terms of, of solar activity and in terms of glaciers coming and going in the northern hemisphere. It's interesting, we always think of gravitation in the solar system as being centered in the sun, and we, we forget that every body that exists, every planetary body, exerts its own gravitational influences, yes. right? Yeah. And so that, in effect, it's a two-way street. Yeah. As I say, Jupiter is, is largely responsible, well, almost entirely responsible for uh, glacial periods here on Earth, where we get out, out of every 100,000-year cycle, which is a full cycle from maximum eccentricity to minimum, back to maximum eccentricity is a 100,000-year is cycle. And out of that 100,000 years, we typically get somewhere between 10 and 20,000 years of interglacial period, and we get 80 to 90,000 years of glaciers over this part of the world. So if you look at the last two points in the cycle, the cycle is, uh, there's a major cycle of of 400,000 years and a sub-cycle of 100,000 years. So there's peaks and valleys in these cycles. So you've got a major peak 800,000 years ago, a major peak 400,000 years ago, a major peak 100,000 years ago, and so on. And if you look at the point in the cycle 400,000 years ago and 800,000 years ago, the exact same point we're at in the cycle right now, we were already into another glacial period at this point in the cycle. And the only thing that's keeping the Holocene interglacial period, we're living right in the tail end of it, the only thing that might be keeping it going is the fact that we're putting some greenhouse gas into the atmosphere to maybe keep things warm for a little while longer. Well, I've heard that argument actually made, that that thank goodness that we're creating CO2 through our production because it's creating the greening of the planet. Well, here's the other thing about CO2. I said CO2 is 70% oxygen, right? Right. And So if you put a molecule of CO2 into the air, when a plant absorbs that CO2, it strips the carbon off and incorporates that carbon into its physical structure, Right. Right. And what does it release? It releases the oxygen. Oxygen. So, oh, so, that's well expressed. That's the first time I heard it said that. So, way. when you burn fossil fuel, you're providing plant food that eventually converts into oxygen in the atmosphere. You're not carbonizing the atmosphere. In the end, you're oxygenizing the atmosphere. 
So even that they have backwards. Even that they have backwards. And the trick is we need more CO2 to promote plant growth. Precisely. Because that's that's what's required to really green the planet is more plant food. Well, don't you think then that what you just said, the knowledge of that could be a driving force behind the activists who don't want to see more food on the planet. They want to ration stuff, okay? So exactly. They, they don't want... Part of the to, agenda. Yes. So it's, again, that anti-life mentality that, that, that sits behind all of this. Yep. Keep and, people terrified so they don't question the facts. There are no facts on the other side. That's, uh, <laughs> uh, man, I'm telling you, that's so depressing. Ian Plymer, great to have you back on Outsiders, mate. Thank you. So good to see you. You're looking very well. I'm feeling very well. You've been traveling the world. I certainly have. Fossil fuels. And I have indeed, and excellent. it's wonderful. Putting but, have you been, but have you been offsetting your carbon with all of that travel? Uh, yes, I have. I've been drinking uh, bubbly champagne and other things which put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Excellent. excellent. That's my excellent. excellent. That's yeah. my excellent. That's your penance. Yeah. <laughs> now, listen, talk to us. So we've seen all the nonsense with Extinction Rebellion and coal is evil, the Labour Party want to climate emergency. So let's just throw that question at you. Are we in a climate emergency, Ian Plymer? We live in horribly boring times. <laughs> uh, we've had one period in geological history called the Boring Billion. We are in another boring time. Whatever we think is happening, such as extinction or climate change, it's been quicker and greater in the past. We're not in an extinction. We've had five major mass extinctions, and this is when you lose 70% of all species. We have species turnover all the time. Every year a few species cark it, and every year you get a few new species. We're living in one of those times. And the species that we notice that have carked it are the big ones but we don't notice the small species that are growing and creeping up on us. So we're not living in a period of extinction. We are not living in a period of extraordinary climate. We're living in a very benign climate. We are actually still living in an ice age. That ice age started on a Tuesday 34 million years ago, <laughs> and it's still going, and it fluctuates between cold periods, glaciation, and warm periods, and interglacial. We are in one of those interglacials. Those interglacials are driven by that great ball of heat in the sky we call the sun, for some reason, a trace gas has nothing to do with our climate. It's the sun. And if we get further away from the sun, it gets cooler. And if it gets closer to the sun, it gets warmer. Now, no legislation from Canberra or from the UN can change the orbit of the Earth. And the orbit will inevitably put us into another cool period. We've seen it many, many, many times before. These are cycles. And we have climate cycles that are every 400 million years with continents pulling apart and coming back together again. Every 143 million years when we're in a wrong part of the galaxy and we get bombarded by cosmic rays and then orbital cycles every 100,000, 40,000 and 20,000 years. And then solar cycles every 1,500, 217, 87 and 11 years. Tidal cycles, oceanic cycles. You put a few of them together and bang, the climate will change. And very quickly. Rita? Uh, well... Why is everything so short-term then? Because you're looking at it as the history of, of, of the world. You're looking at it millions of years and, and the, the, the history you can document there. But why is everything so short-term when we have, you know, a, a warm summer and then you've got all the climate activists saying, well, this is it, this is... How much more evidence do you need that things are coming to a, a catastrophe? Catastrophe, you know, they're saying that if we don't take drastic action today, um, things are going to be very grim for the future of the planet. Well, in my life, I've lived in a period of warming. 
I've lived in a period of cooling, and I'm now. Then I lived in a period of warming, and I'm now in a period where nothing's happening, where it's neither warming nor cooling. So I've already seen climate change in my life, and it doesn't kill you. Uh, climate change is quite normal, and in fact, I would be really concerned if climates didn't change. I'd be really worried <laughs> if climate didn't change. So. These people are only thinking of me, me and me and me. But what about the man-made contribution to that change? Well, um, I'm optimistic enough that one day someone might find that humans have an influence on climate. But I'm yet to see it. But tell, I, tell I'm us, waiting in patience. So tell us about carbon dioxide and then tell us about coal. Because uh, the, uh, the Extinction Rebellion and others would tell us that the amount of carbon dioxide is, is cooking us, basically, and we're, we're finished and the last couple of years have been the hottest ever or something like that. Debunk those for me. Well, the last couple of years haven't been the hottest ever. Um, in recorded measuring time, it's been the 1930s. It was much hotter then than now, right across the world. We were in a very hot period of time. The second thing is carbon dioxide is a normal planetary gas. We find it on the moon, we find it on all planets, and planet Earth is leaking out carbon dioxide and methane all the time. You can measure it. Uh, the third thing is that previously in the Earth's atmosphere we had much more carbon dioxide. And the global carbon dioxide content has been reducing through geological time. Yet, when we've had carbon dioxide hundreds of times higher than now, we've had ice ages. Only six of them, but we've had six major ice ages when carbon dioxide was much higher. James, you're frothing at the, at the <laughs> no, mouth. So I'm just curious then, like I, I, you know, and, and, and I get exactly what you say. What I'm curious about is why is it then that carbon dioxide, and this may be less of a scientific than an economic and a philosophical question, why is it that carbon dioxide has become the, uh, the, 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 the sin, I guess, of our modern world that, that we seek to eradicate if there's no connection? Is it because there's money to be made in the transition? Is it because people need something to believe in? What is that all about? Well, the main greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is water vapour. Now, you cannot have a revolution against water. But carbon dioxide is a beautiful symbol to use because all industry in civilised first world countries pumps out carbon dioxide. And therefore you've got a mechanism of deindustrialising the West by attacking this gas to which industry is held. Now let's talk about let's talk about coal. Well, coal is compressed solar power. Um, coal derives from plants photosynthesising, these being uh, collected as peat and then ending up as brown coal and ending up as coal with more heat and pressure. Coal is actually compressed sunlight. You can burn that day or night, and what do you do? You produce carbon dioxide, which you put back into the atmosphere, and that's where it came from. And some coals, not the Australian coals, have a bit of sulphur in them, and they put sulphur gases into the atmosphere, you get smog, you get acid rain. Now, but this... our coals don't have it, they are low ash, they're top quality coals, there's nothing you could do with, in the world without coal. You cannot make steel or metals without coal. And if you want to feed yourself or stir your cafe latte uh, with a teaspoon, you need coal to make that tea. Now, this is the biggest part of the fraud which I absolutely loathe, is the fact that well-meaning people think that 
climate change policies are all about cleaning up pollution, the smog that you referred to. We see places like China, the smog is just disgusting, it's horrible. But that's not the carbon dioxide, but they think it is. They also think the pollution, the plastic in the oceans, which most of it comes from China anyway, they think that is somehow related to climate change. So well-meaning people who want to clean up the planet, a worthy, worthy uh, concept, have been hoodwinked into thinking that carbon dioxide is the villain. Would that be fair? Well, a couple of things. I was in China a few days ago, uh, and you cough your lungs out, your eyes water. That yeah. is because of poor quality coal and sulphur gases in the atmosphere and particles in the atmosphere. And now, yeah, I, think, right. I think people um, in this country have nothing to fight for. They've got plenty of food. They're extraordinarily wealthy compared with the rest of the world. They carry residual Christian guilt. They're looking for a new religion. <laughs> And so they want to feel guilty about being comfortable and they can attack a colourless, odourless gas, they can attack industry, they can actually feel good by attacking something and thinking that they have a purpose for life. They don't. They might as well shuffle off. Uh, well, climate change, we now say climate change, we don't say global warming. Uh, was there, or did I imagine this, a fear well, decades ago of global cooling? Oh, yes, very much so. In the 70s, uh, newspaper articles were full of it. And they, these are some of the 50 great scams we've had on climate in, in the last 50 years. We are now going to fry and die. 40 years ago, we are going to freeze. And the scientists were telling us this. Unfortunately, we don't get told that there are cycles of climate and it is quite normal for climate to change. But if it's that obvious, then how can we have so many people who are well-credentialed, who are, you know, leaders in Rita, the Rita, follow the money. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with people feeling this or that. And people use the word believe. I believe in climate change. That's like the catechism. It's a religion. Mm. You cannot believe anything. Belief is in politics and religion, not in science. <laughs> So Dave, what are the average people like you and myself able to do to counter all of this prevailing nonsense that we read about climate change that we, that we ourselves know is not so? Well, I'm trying to spread the word. I mean, I published this book, Inconveniently Screwed. Uh, if anybody's interested in it, I have a website. Uh, the website is inconveniently screwed, all one word, lowercase.com. You can purchase a book through that. I'm working on this secondary uh, booklet that I call Climate Essentials. I'll be offering that for sale for a fair bit less money than the mm. book, and you can read it in two or three hours, or the book will take two or three days. I, I like the name of that, too, Climate Essentials. It gives people the basics of what they should know. Yeah, it's sort of the Coles Notes version of Inconveniently right. Screwed. Yeah, all the color commentary and background and right. personal stuff is left out. just gets down to the facts and the science. So... I don't know what else to do other than just to keep trying to disseminate the truth to the masses of people who really don't understand. There's a lot of people who have this vague feeling that something isn't quite right, that, that all of the story isn't being told, mm -hmm. but they don't know where to come for the information. I mean, it's readily available on the Internet if you're willing to sit down for several hours for several days and, and ferret it all out. But here in in this book, it's all right there. But for the you. problem I th I see the bigger problem is that you can disseminate all of the accurate information in the world, but if you aren't affecting the political realm, nothing's going to change because that's what's driving all of this. Mm -hmm. And here in Canada, I know of only two political parties that are 
totally opposed to all of this nonsense. Federally, finally, we have one called the People's Party of Canada. Maxime Bernier has never fallen for this stuff. Yep. And provincially, of course, there's the Freedom Party of Ontario, which you and I are both members of. You're the president of your own local constituency association and have spoken out on this issue publicly. But the major parties, all of them, even the Conservatives, even the Liberals and the NDP and, of course, the Green. What Conservative Party? There's no Conservative well, Party anymore. It's Conservative in name only. I mean, I, Andrew Scheer was a blue Liberal. Well, you know, they, they remember they dropped the adjective progressive some time ago, but I don't think they really dropped the meaning of it. And progressive means socialist, right? We still have a progressive Conservative Party in Ontario. And even though Doug Ford is supposedly against carbon taxes, he's still on the fighting climate change bandwagon. Anytime you hear some politicians say we're going to keep spending money on attempting to reduce greenhouse gas, that's a carbon tax. Right. You can call it cap and trade, you can call it carbon tax, you can call it reducing greenhouse gas, you you can put any label you want on it. It all comes down to the same thing. As a taxpayer and as a consumer, as, as a person who buys anything, it's going to cost you money for the government to be seen to be doing something that's not going to really be doing anything. You know, the scary part that I discovered in that Globe Mail article is they're now talking about not just the taxes, but carbon rationing, where you have to have a card that, that says what you're buying and what you're getting from who. Hakton! Yeah, Papers, please! Exactly. And that's where it's going. And this is where, where we're headed towards. And people do have forgotten the horrors of socialism and that socialism has never worked anywhere it's been tried. It's a temporary credit card system. Mm-hmm. You know? Then you're leaving the bill to be paid by future generations. Yeah. And that's what always happens. You want to talk about other cycles, there's a political cycle. Well, and sometimes, you know, I get kind of discouraged with this and I throw my hands up and I say, you know, like, I'm retired, I've done the right things in terms of saving up for retirement and, and, and I'm not wealthy by any means and I'm likely going to be okay financially for as, as long as, as I'm likely to live. Why should I care about the stew pot that younger people are getting themselves into? You know, I think about the people who've gone before us and who did things the right way, who made it possible for us to live like we do. And I have kids and I have people I'm concerned about and grandchildren who are going to live in the world of the future. And we all see humanity as a continuum. Yeah. And it's funny because when you talk about some of these cycles of weather and glaciation, you're talking in terms of 100,000 years. When we think of humanity's history, the recorded history is only a tiny fraction of that. Will humanity even be on the planet then? I mean, that's, that's a whole question in and of itself. And how, and how long has humanity been here? We don't well, know. Well, it's coming pretty soon, and it might be a few years or a few centuries, or even if we're really, really lucky, a few millennia, when humanity will be here. But it won't be where we're sitting right now, because there's going to be a few kilometers of ice over us. That's right. <laughs> we'll be south of here. Yeah, by the way, even in the worst period of glaciation, how far south did it go, and how, what parts of the planet? A little bit south of us. It covered all of Canada okay, and down a little bit into the northern states. But, I mean, that was the leading edge of the glacier. But once you, you got, once you got growing, further... You still wouldn't be growing corn and potatoes in places like Idaho and Iowa. But south of that, it would still be very temperate. Florida would be probably about like what we have here now. So it's not like the planet would be totally uninhabitable. <laughs> uh, again, 
All I'm saying is that there's there's trouble coming, but it's not from global warming. No, but you see, even that kind of speculation that we just got into is it can lead to the same kind of hysteria in terms of the short range expectations of climate change. I mean, they're not they're not talking a hundred thousand years; they're talking twelve years, which is ridiculous. Well, see, here's a problem with with all the current talk: is it's the immediacy of it. Mm-hmm. If we don't do something right now, ten years from now, you're going to fry in hell. Well, that's not true. No. <laughs> Whereas I'm saying there's nothing we can do right now. And sometime over the next several thousand years, the glaciers are coming back. But I'm not saying that you're going to be buried under a kilometer of ice 10 years from now. Well, certainly focusing on CO2 is, is as absurd a solution to fighting climate change as anything I've heard, let alone carbon taxes, where we're, we're, we're not getting rid of the carbon, we're giving other countries the right to produce it yeah. at our own expense, which is a way of transferring wealth from one country to another, which is what this is all about, wealth transfer. The problem is that is as abstract a concept to as many people politically as climate change is. Yeah. So this is not a perceptual kind of an issue that you can deal with. It's very conceptual. You have to be able to think on higher levels and in different time frames. And as you say, a climate scientist isn't just studying the atmosphere. And the atmosphere, of course, is always undergoing tremendous changes. The science of fluid dynamics, as Mm -hmm. Chris Essex likes to talk about, which contributes to the idea that you cannot predict the climate going into several dozen years ahead. How do we get that common knowledge out there? I think, I, I think I'm still kind of frustrated by that challenge. It's right there in that chart of the school system. They're just not teaching it anymore. So the schools are the problem? That's where we should be putting our efforts? Well, that's one root cause. Or we're not properly educating young people in science. We're propagandizing them in this, what I call, climate change BS. And by BS, if I have to spell it out, I mean bad science. (laughs) And then there's, of course, the the ultimate problem of who's running the schools, ultimately. It's our governments. They're funding them. They're establishing the curricula. So again, it always comes back to the political solution. I think, I mean, we can talk science all we want, but I guess the bottom line is... Or it comes down to teachers who are teaching science, who are willing to learn the real science, learn the facts and say that my principles matter more than my paycheck and my pension, and I'm going to go off curriculum, and I'm going to teach the kids real science. But it takes a spine and a lot of courage to, you know. But even so, only a minority will do it. The easy way out is, is to, you know, say what bullies and cowards have said to justify atrocities great and small, since time immemorial, just following orders. Yep. Just following orders. Just following the curriculum. Because the paycheck and the pension matters more than the truth. And if that's harsh on teachers, then if you're a teacher, take a look at it and ask if it's true. Well, Dave, I think you summarized the whole (laughs) problem right there in that final statement. Our time is out for this week. But for more truth... And getting some facts on these issues, we hope you, of course, will continue to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction and in the true direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Thanks, Dave. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright.
Climate, 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 please don't change. Climate, 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 please don't change. Facts, facts, go facts. Hey, Skyler. Hey, what's up, Tyler? I thought you were going to skip this stupid protest. Yeah, I wanted to. God, I'm so bored. I wish we could go to school. That'd be cool. Reading books, learning stuff. Yeah. Anyway, back to work. Climate, climate, climate. Please don't change. Climate, come on, put some feeling into it. Climate, climate, climate. Please don't change. Climate, climate, climate. Please don't change. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is wonderful to be here today. Wonderful. It is amazing. What you young people are doing here today is nothing short of a protest. 